0: sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right i'm craig johnson this week we are continuing to deal with the aftermath of january 6th coup broken record i know but uh just get used to it Uh, also some news from international developments in nationalism in myanmar and the dominican republic we also have a see you in hell from hungary in world war ii and also from chile in the 1990s Ongoing investigations into the relationship between the Trump administration and the January 6th attempted coup have produced some more information. Specifically, we are getting increasing numbers of reports of uh, government officials, specifically Trump administration officials, who were either present at the event itself... Uh, or involved in some way. Uh, for example, we know now that a former DEA agent, Mark Ibrahim, was there. He was present at the event. Uh, he and his lawyers claim that he did not enter the building or did not approach the Capitol. Uh, however, you know, that's their defense. Uh, there is ongoing investigation of audio and visual records of the event itself. Uh, so whether or not he was present, if he was, uh, will be found out pretty soon. Uh, his claim is that he just wanted to be there because it was history in the making, uh, and his claim is that his presence there was just, you know, him exercising his First Amendment rights uh, to freedom of speech. Somebody who can make no such claim, however, is someone named um, Federico Klein. Uh, he went by Freddie. He's a United States citizen and a former member of the State Department, a Trump administration appointee who worked specifically in the Southern Cone and Brazilian branch of the State Department, uh, and also had top secret clearance granted to him by the Department of Defense. He got this political position because he was an aide to Trump's 2016 campaign. Uh, and you know, campaign officials just called the State Department and said, like, hey, you gotta give this guy a job. Uh, the State Department did not want to, um, and so they stuck him where they didn't think that he would be able to do anything bad, uh, this like relatively peripheral branch of the State Department. Uh, this is partly because of his ancestry. Uh, Klein's father was an Argentine national. Uh, the people in the Department of State that uh, spoke with the New York Times correspondent that broke this story have said that his work was uninteresting and that, you know, they don't really remember him for any of his Professionalism, uh, but that they do specifically remember him for his extremely virulently right-wing politics. Um, he was a religious conservative, opposed to abortion rights, um, and a virulent supporter of Donald Trump the president. Now, at the rally itself, at the January 6th rally, Klein can be seen in many videos, uh, not just like being present there, but actually being one of the leaders and instigators of the mob itself. Uh, you can see him breaking windows, you can see him brandishing police riot shields that I guess he or another one of the rioters had stolen from the Capitol Police or from the National Guard, it's unclear. Uh, you can see him breaking windows, and most interestingly, you can see him directing the crowd, uh, telling the crowd, you know, we need fresh people, is a quote from him uh, in some of these videos. Um, exactly what the relationship between his work and his behavior at the coup itself remains unclear, and, and it's going to take a lot of investigative reporting that, uh, frankly, I'm not entirely sure how people do when it's not something that's uh, in historical time uh, Um I would be deeply interested in any reports, information, ideas, and new developments in this. Um, of course, because of my professional interests, I'm particularly intrigued by the fact that this guy worked specifically uh, with the Brazilian and Southern Cone region. Uh, the Southern Cone is Chile and Argentina and Uruguay, uh, which is also specifically the part of the world that I study in my PhD dissertation. Uh, so the idea that there might be a connection between his political ideology and his work at the FBI and his behavior at this coup is very interesting. Uh, this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on for the future. We also know, due to another recent report, again in the New York Times, Uh, that a Trump government official was in contact with one of the leaders of the Proud Boys on January 6th. Um, We don't currently have any information about what those calls contained, uh, or even we, we currently don't know exactly who it was that was communicating. However, this is increasing evidence of interaction between Trump administration officials and people who were on the ground attempting to prevent the acknowledgement of Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election, uh, who were also potentially attempting to commit acts of violence against uh, sitting members of Congress or former Vice President Mike Pence. In more confusing right-wing news in the United States, uh, former leader of the alt-right Milo Yiannopoulos, well not the leader but you know one of the leading lights on the alt-right back in 2016-2017, has uh, now said that he has ceased to be gay, uh, that he has successfully gone through, you know, deconversion therapy, um, and that he is now no longer a homosexual. Milo Yiannopoulos' homosexuality was a very interesting part of the right-wing ecosystem in 2016-2017, and he was one of the main pieces of evidence for the different relationship that the alt-right, as a specific right-wing political formation, had to, well, not LGBTQ issues, but specifically male homosexuality. Um, he and several other members of the alt-right were out homosexuals, uh, or at least supported male homosexual activity, uh, effectively as a, as a branch off of their misogyny, uh, and also in keeping with their, uh, idolization of, you know, what they considered to be the Greek and Roman past. Now, of course, this is an extremely complicated question because as a homosexual man doing this publicly, you know, there's a certain level of pain that you can imagine that he's going through in denying this part of his life. Uh, however, as an out fascist, um, it's very difficult to, uh, you know, drum up any sympathy for his experience. The most interesting part of this is not, you know, it's not exactly what's going on with DiNapoli in particular. He's really faded from the limelight, specifically in the wake of a of a big scandal uh, that he was involved in, when he seemed to use his homosexuality to um, justify priestly sexual abuse within the within the Catholic Church, um, and also after uh, his, you know, uh, really disastrous attempt to speak on the Berkeley campus. Um, one of the more successful activities of uh, black block anarchists back in 2016-2017 was denying him the space uh, to speak on Berkeley campus. Um, so he he is sort of like a faded light already. He, he is a particular example. It's not particularly important. What's interesting is that his, you know, ceasing to be homosexual, you know, his saying that he is straight now, or at least no longer gay, uh, is evidence of a real serious right-wing Christian turn. Uh, within the far right in the United States, um, the increasing relevance and power of Nick Fuentes, for example, a you know a, a radical Christian conservative, in his own words, um, is evidence of this. And so, this is you know potentially, arguably, a sign of a shift from what was originally the alt right formation, which was you know a a sort of new and young and very politically different and distinct uh, formation on the right wing. Uh, back towards a much more standard far-right in the United States, one that is a, essentially a brand of Christian nationalism. Um, his embracing of Christianity in particular is something that we are increasingly seeing uh, from members of the alt-right um, and also from other newer far-right voices. Uh, so we're going, to, we're going to have to keep paying attention to this. And finally, in the United States, the FBI has been finding increasing evidence of right-wing attempts to infiltrate uh, law enforcement and the military in the United States. And by increasing evidence, I mean like they're finding names, they're finding um, messages on right-wing message boards and correspondence among right-wing individuals uh, about this as an intentional campaign. Uh, they are attempting to infiltrate not just law enforcement, but the military in general, Um, The ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, which focuses on uh, preventing anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic violence in the United States, uh, has also recently released a lot of reports uh, targeting um, the danger of increasing right-wing behavior in the United States military and how this interacts with exactly what we saw on January 6th and things that we can expect to see uh, in the coming years as the right-wing continues to organize and mobilize in the wake of the end of the Trump administration. Outside of the United States, uh, news in the world of nationalism includes that the president of the Dominican Republic, um, Abinander, has said that he wants to build a border wall uh, between the Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, two countries that share the island of Hispaniola, or at least that's the uh, Spanish colonial name of the island, and um, the relationship between the Dominican Republic and Haiti is an extremely complicated and interesting one. Um, both nations are primarily populated by people of African descent uh, who descend from people who were brought from Africa to the Americas in slavery. Um, but the relationship between the two countries is very different and their levels of development uh, and literacy and a whole host of other things is is massively different. Um, Haiti being the less developed and um, in general, more difficult place to live. Uh, and so his rhetoric uh, regarding Haitians is very similar to uh, the kind of rhetoric that uh, people from the United States should remember coming out of the former President Donald Trump, uh, as is the specific tactic deciding that he wants to build a border wall. Uh, whether or not this will happen uh, remains to be seen. This is not a new idea in the Dominican Republic, um, but it is evidence of increasing nationalism and potentially an, an, you know, an attempt to carry on in the legacy of Trump. Additionally, the coup government in Myanmar continues its crackdown on the opposition to their coup. Um, we continue to see reports of dozens of people shot. Um, many street protesters uh, have been murdered uh, by the police by the military. Um, in their attempts to protest uh, the military's takeover of that country's government. Uh, meanwhile, workers and unions within Myanmar continue to organize uh, daily strikes uh, against the military government and trying to prevent Western countries from recognizing this government. However, it looks as if they might be successfully, they as in the, the coup government, the military, might be successfully maneuvering between the United States and China using Cold War logic. Essentially their claim is that hey United States if you don't recognize us then we will be in China's camp um which means that not only is this a problem for people in Myanmar which is enough of a problem in and of itself that they are murdering people um this is also a problem on the international stage because it uh a return to a particular insidious cold war logic that saw for example in the United States um in the United States relationship to many Latin American countries you know, an impulse to recognize right-wing military governments in order to prevent what they saw as, you know, the potential for left-wing governments to be supported by or to support the Soviet Union. going to conclude this week's episode with our recurring segment, See You in Hell, that celebrates the death of important right-wing figures in history. Uh, The first one is not a figure per se, but a regime. Uh, The Pinochet government ended This Week in History, March 11th, 1990. It concluded after Pinochet voluntarily left office, uh, following his loss in a plebiscite over his continued presidency. So the people of Chile were offered a choice. Do you want Pinochet to continue to be the president, or do you want literally anything else? Uh, And Pinochet lost uh, by about 10 percentage points, which is a pretty serious failure uh, considering how successfully he had maintained power in that country um, for almost 25 years at that point. He was succeeded by Patricio Alwin, a Christian Democrat who took office on March 11th, 1990, becoming the first president uh, elected in Chile uh, since uh, the election of Salvador Allende uh, in 1970. Of course, the Pinochet regime as such didn't exactly end in 1990. Uh, the constitution that his government promulgated in 1980 remained in effect in Chile up until this day uh, with with amendments. Uh, however, very recently last year, the people of Chile voted to change that constitution to have a new constitutional convention and finally do away with this document that was one of the last official, uh evidences of the dictatorship's hold over the structure of that country's government. Finally, the right-wing figure who died this week is a man named Fernik Um He's Hungarian. I deeply apologize to any speaker of a Slavic language uh, for my inability to pronounce Slavic names and words. Uh, he held office in Hungary as the prime minister of, you know, the, the head of state and the head of government. In Hungary, uh, after the Germans installed him essentially as a puppet PM. Uh, he was the leader of a local Hungarian fascist organization, the Hungarian Arrow Cross, which was effectively in opposition to a another right-wing figure that I've talked about recently on this podcast, Miklos Horthy. Uh, Horthy opposed the Arrow Cross because, well, essentially... He was a, you know, more conservative leaning right wing figure, whereas the Arrow Cross was a very transparently fascist organization. Um, Selzy became the prime minister after Horthy escaped Hungary, uh, and, you know, landed in Portugal, as I noted in a previous episode. Uh, and when in office, he participated in the Holocaust. He deported some 10 to 12,000 Jewish people to camps operated by the Germans, uh, to their deaths. He attempted to escape Austria uh, after the death of Adolf Hitler, um, but was captured by the Allies and was returned to a post-fascist Hungary, uh, where he was then tried for war crimes and high treason, found guilty, and hanged alongside with several of his former regime members uh, this week in history, March 12th, 1946. Uh, So to both the Pinochet government and Salzi himself, uh, we say see you in hell. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with friends, family, or comrades. And if you found it really interesting, please check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism, all one word. I'll talk to you next week.